Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reel. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Look at those points. There are three, I should say. I shouldn't count myself when I'm doing that. How are you guys doing? So good. How are you? Very, very good. Sing it off the air, but we should say it to everybody watching. All right, yeah. I my kids are not in school yet, so I had a, a babysitter come take them out of the house, and I could be cleaning the house or taking a break. But I'm doing what I would love to do with my free time, which is talk with you, amazing, beautiful people. And uh, for those of you who have been following, this is now part three of of our our doing this book. Um, Anthony has been putting out some. He's got a new podcast, so check out his podcast. Okay. Bill, um, he I, I don't cross-reference a lot of your other podcasts that you do yeah. because I just personally think that our podcast is the best podcast on your platform, of course. Yeah. That's my bias. But uh, he just did an amazing episode on automatic writing that I thought was absolutely fascinating that you'll have to check out. And then, Jana, I know you must do this sometimes where you just see a bunch of clients in a row about some particular thing. And if you don't follow her on social media, you should, because once in a while, not all the time, you're not on there every day, but once in a while, you'll just like post a bunch of stuff. And I have to like sit back. It's like, I have to like smoke it and like slowly enjoy the words that you're putting out anyway. So really good. I've been, I've been, you know, off for a while, but you guys have been putting out some great stuff in the past few weeks. So it's still good to hear your voice. Thank you so much. All right, should we dive in? Sure. I'll get so I'll just give one plug since you referenced it. Yeah. So, the most recent uh, uh, podcast episode that I released was a discussion with Lindsay Hanson Park about post deconstruction community, and um, for those that are interested, we talked uh, about a variety of different things, including. You know what's helpful, unhelpful, what's transitory, uh, what the shadow side of things are, things like that, and um, I think we'll touch on some of those things in this next chapter uh, in this book. Um, but I'd I'd recommend to viewers and listeners to to go watch that uh, episode with uh, with Lindsay's thoughts on this topic. Absolutely, and um, it's it's the question that I ask everyone who comes on our podcast, who is, you know, working on in this space and, and you are t asking the similar questions to Lindsay on that podcast, which I was interested to hear your thoughts, because it's the question, the question that we're diving into today, which is nobody knows the answer to this is like, okay, we did part one, which was like, 
faith crisis and it was super hard and we cried a little bit. And then we did part two, which was like doubt opened up some things and there's some growth and really beautiful things. And then now is part three of like, okay, like what do we do now? How do I rebuild my family and my community? And what about the world? How do we like redo the world? Right. And nobody knows the answer to any of that. We're all in the question. Um, and so that's kind of where we're headed today. So we have five chapters here. And so I think I'll just do like I did last time, just like briefly outline what the chapter was and then let you guys go. So the first chapter for this part three of Faith After Doubt is uh, Communities of Harmony. And so it's this question that everybody's talking about and people are trying to solve in their different ways which is how do we create communities of people who you've done the, you know, you've had the doubts, it's opened up some things. Now you're looking for a community. What do we do? And so, you know, he would say things like, it's not just that the supply of faith communities is low. It's that the demand is low too. And the options that we have are like, you either get progressive wrapping paper, on the same old Christianity, which is just like, it's the same thing, but we have rock music, or you have a more progressive theology, but the structure's the same. And we haven't kind of been able to install a new program in place. So what are your thoughts on this kind of, on this question and kind of where we're at in handling this question, either in your life or what you're seeing in the world? And I'll just throw that out for you guys. Um, well, I'll take a stab at this. I, I think we're pretty terrible at it right now. I'll be honest. Um, it's one of the main things. It's probably the most common thing I see with people who come to me who are in deconstruction is this longing for what it is we're talking about. And it seems to be a unicorn. One of the things that I think is a stumbling block to our reimagining this is that we think that if we're going to have a community in harmony, that 100% of what we do has to be in harmony. And there really is not enough demand for that. I mean, most of us have not put our center of gravity in harmony, let's be honest. (laughs) Deconstruction takes up so much time and so much of our attention. And the bulk of the really great voices out there center in deconstruction, and they're so necessary, and I love them. And I think we have to start really seeing and believing what Brian talks about, that this is not jumping from one box to another box. Oh, I was in deconstruction. Now I'm going to be in a community of harmony. We have got to start to build communities led by people who can access harmony that include the previous steps, or we're never going to get anywhere. And I think sometimes we silo these things and think that if we're doing any kind of deconstruction, if we're doing, um, if we're doing, if we're, we're mentioning things that are difficult, if we're getting into the weeds, um, then we're not really, we're not really doing harmony, if that makes sense. Because even the name harmony makes it sound like now we're at a utopia where we have arrived. And I have some thoughts about that that I'll share. I don't want to just take too much time right now. But I've kind of been thinking a lot about this, about how do we actually talk about harmony? Because one of the biggest stumbling blocks, again, that I see is that um, we have a hard time imagining what harmony is. Because when we talk about faith after doubt, when we talk about God after doubt, when we talk about anything 
that evokes the spirituality of what it is after doubt. Those terms are so laden with uh, simplistic and complexity, that the meanings that we built in simplicity and complexity, that anyone in perplexity has a really, really hard time with using that verbiage. So I, it was, I, I actually entered this particular uh, discussion of this book. I enter it with a lot of trepidation. I will just say that because a lot of the words that I want to use, if we're not very careful about how we define them, it, it, it's going to just turn off a whole bunch of people and they're going to think that I'm talking about something I'm not. Because that's what I find, that 95% of the time when I'm talking about these subjects, unless I'm very careful about the way I talk about it, people think they don't even know what I'm talking about. They misconstrue what I'm talking about. Hmm. Um, he has this conversation with a person where they're asking like, Hey, you know, wh where do I go? Like, what's the church I, I join? And he goes, I've got good news and bad news. And he runs through, you know, some of what, what you're pointing to. And, um, man, I'm, I'm stuck. I, I'm going to stammer here because I'm, I'm stuck in this place where I can see that religion serves a valuable purpose in passing along the needed technology, information, and tools that allow human beings to collaborate and work together and to find meaning in their lives, awe and wonder in the outer world, and some sort of looking in the inner world to where they can really be accountable and start to fix something, right? And we all know all the unhealthiness when religion assumes it has the certain answers and it corrupts the original healthiness of kind of the message to look inward. And now it points us back outward again at some new person who's got the solution. And, and I, so I see all the good reasons why we got to figure this out and why folks like um, McLean here, right? That's, um, I just went blank, but um, McLaren. McLaren. Yes. McLaren. Yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry. I just watched Die Hard for around Christmas time. <laughs> And so John McLean, I think is his name in the show. But anyway, um, I also am deeply worried that we can't do it. That the aversion, the reason we're trying to do this is because we have so many aversions to religion that there's going to be no way for a hundred of the wisest people to sit together and go look. And I really think of what it takes it takes all these major voices in this arena, whether it's today, Richard Rohr and Brene Brown and whoever, it, it really is going to take a group of people at any given moment who are the wisest of voices who say, we're going to all work together and we're going to create something that we can pass on and we can perpetuate that gives us healthy meaning in our lives and awe and wonder in the universe. And I don't know if it can be done. Yeah, I, I have a few thoughts about this. Observations, I'll see if I can make this coherent. That, um, you know, the organizations that we come from, they're in the simplicity and uh, complexity stages. And then when people differentiate into perplexity, um, we do a variety of different things. Number one is 
For many of us, our very sense of identity and ego was completely enmeshed with our roles and our reputation, our experiences, our family connections, when we were in those first two stages. And so uh, one path is to try to become a progressive and go back and try to move the, the tone and the theology and introduce some of the benefits of perplexity to those first two stages. And, uh, man, that's a hard, that is a hard road to hoe, right? It's very, very difficult because you become not only a heretic, but potentially the apostate, the dangerous person, the near enemy that we need to protect our tribe from. Um, then another approach, or maybe a simultaneous approach, is to try to go replace that experience. And you try to find progressive groups. You church hop, you go to like a Faith Matters Foundation event, you do things like that, um, and you experience some sense of belonging but it's really never the same as the enmeshment with identity and ego that you experienced when you were in the first two stages. Um, at some point along the process, when there's been a deconstruction of belief and identity, roles, reputation, maybe existential crisis, there's a tremendous amount of grief. And then you find, or at least you seek out groups that can validate your experience. So you have an experience of trauma bonding right? Which is important for a period of time. Um, and maybe you can harvest relationships and things out of that. Um, but to perpetually spend the rest of your life in a trauma bonding group probably isn't a place to grow. And um, so then you reach out and you try to find different things and so forth. So it's just like this super messy evolutionary kind of experience where you are in the wilderness, you belong nowhere and everywhere kind of thing. And you're trying to figure out what to do with regard to community. I wanted to, I wanted to share a quote from the book. He, when he talks about this, he says, uh, I just lost it. There it is. He says, people are already doing amazing things. There are courageous, creative pastors, rabbis, and other faith community members who are stepping into the gap with new experiences springing up all over here in North Carolina. Uh, this is what he was, he was having a conversation with somebody in North Carolina. Meanwhile, normal people are gathering spontaneously to learn all over the place, but instead of gathering exclusively in buildings with stained glass windows, they're learning together through podcasts and Ted talks. And they're starting reading groups and living rooms and pub theology groups and bars and restaurants. Instead of gathering 52 times a year for one hour, I see people gathering once a year or twice a year for 52 hours in festivals and retreats and excursions into the wilderness, intense conferences and so forth. We have growing numbers of brilliant scholars and gifted artists who offer amazing resources to the conversation without needing to control it or monetize it with daily email devotionals, weekly podcasts, and all kinds of on-demand online resources. There's amazing things uh, of sharing that are happening, like an open source revolution uh, and a multi-source revelation. 
So I see that. Like I experience those things when I go to Sunstone, when I go to some Thrive gatherings, when when uh, when I've come down to Southern Utah, Bill, and and gone to the Southern Utah Post Mormon Support Group. Um, I experience those things in our local Mormon sport, Mormon Spectrum Support Group. But in the end, it, it seems like all of us are kind of on an individual journey. And doesn't that make sense? Like once you individuate, you're going to recognize that what you need to fill your life may not be what the other 130 people at the local church congregation need. And so every week doesn't really meet your needs and you see it. And, and, and it seems to be part of the process of letting go of ego. At least if you're going to grow. Anyway, those are some of my thoughts on this chapter. I've said before, oh no, you go first, Jana. You've been sitting on something. No, I just, I I mean, I think that we have to completely reimagine what it is we're even talking about. And what does success mean? If you have a really successful group that 30 people meet for five years and then they disband, was that success? Or are we, are we needing this to be something like a new movement like Christianity? Because I'm telling you that if it happens that way, it's going to cycle back and have the same problems. I think the way forward, we have to completely reimagine. What is success? You know, um, I do think that it is in community and with groups that we lay this moral foundation and foundational learning for our children. You know, Brian mentions in the book, I don't think it was in this chapter, but I would agree. So many people that come to see me, it's the same. It's one of the biggest questions I hear is what do I do with the kids? And they're in the same pickle that the people in the book were in where they were like, if we're going to choose no religion or bad religion, I'm going to choose no religion. Right. The, the, the benefit to religion, they, all those benefits that you mentioned, Bill, that I totally agree with, it doesn't have to come from such a big institution. And I think that the new way of doing things is in smaller gatherings, in house church, in sangha. This has been done before. It's actually when it becomes uh, more led by governments and groups and imperialized that it, that it spreads and proliferates, but then it also comes with it, all the baggage that we're running away from in deconstruction. So I just think we have to completely reimagine it and completely, and, and I think what I heard really strongly in the, the end of this book from Brian McLaren in all of these chapters was a call to arms. It, it was a call to arms, not to fix the religions we came from necessarily, although I think he doesn't exclude that. But I think he is calling for people to just join the fray and try something. And I think so many of us are so afraid to try something because how can I be as successful as what I came from? Well, we just have to have a completely different view of what success means, different metrics entirely. That just brought up like a million thoughts, but um, I love this idea of, you know, if we're, if we're in the post deconstruction phase of Mormonism, Christianity, society, I mean, we're just, we're in the postmodern movement in general, right? Then maybe the future is never going to be a big box shop where you get all the things like maybe that is dying right and so like jenna's saying um when we're talking about measuring success the first thing i thought of is something where the children 
can be involved, right? Because that's the big problem that I see with my clients or, or Janicing is that people can kind of figure out their own spirituality after a few years, find things, find a few people, and then the kids. And it's like, well, what the hell do I do with the kids? Right. And so it's this idea of like, you have to then go to, you know, I have a son who I take to karate three times a week. And it's this older guy that teaches them about self-respect and discipline. And I do it because, wow, there, I will pay for this adult man to teach my son about self-discipline. And I have to piece together all the, all those things for my four children. And it takes a lot of work. And like Jenna's saying, you just have to throw yourself out there and try. And with our group that we have in Boise just this year, we've been meeting for five years, just this year, we started to do a few things for the kids. Like let's get the kids together. Um, and you really do have to just like, well, if it's going to be no religion, then I'm going to have to try to piecemeal all the things that I got in my childhood, it, you know, for my children. And, you know, you listen to podcasts and hopefully you find other people and you try things and hopefully something, you know, works out. But it may be the end of that big box experience where it all comes in one place, which is easier. But like Jana saying, that's when it comes with the host of problems also. And so you almost have to like pick your poison in that situation. Like, okay, if you leave the big box shop, like you got to piecemeal this together and you got to get out there and try some things. And this is why we need it to be, you have to be able to hold different stages of where people are in in a, a, any kind of gathering or group that is doing this. Because we always want to parent from our stage of development. We don't want to parent to their stage of development. But I thought Brian gave a brilliant, some brilliant examples in the book of how you teach, because all harmony is, is faith expressed as love. And you can access that at any of the stages. So you give a simplistic rule, but you give it as framed through love. Like you always give that touch of, of what we're pointing to, but so many of us, our brains have not, we, we, we know how to do where we are and it takes a very special skill set and desire to be able to reach down we, in development. We can, we call this growing down and to be able to actually teach from a higher plane to a more simplistic frame. And that is why it's so stinking hard. It is hard because then you're you're really talking about dealing with your own triggers. I know there was a couple years there when I was like really deep into deconstruction where like I couldn't I couldn't go there. Like I couldn't read my kid the story where there was a good guy and a bad guy cuz I just like I was blowing that up. I I had all this baggage wrapped around like good girl, right? Every Mormon woman has to like deconstruct good girl. And like, I couldn't even read him a simple story, which is so healthy for kids that there's a good guy and a bad guy. Like that is so healthy for that age. And I couldn't show up in that place because of my own issues. And so I've thought before that it may be true. It may be a hard truth. I've thought this before that maybe our generation, what we do is we deconstruct. Because I meet with so many kind of groups of, of deconstructed people and it's just a very, you're holding a lot of trauma and so there's a lot of triggers and there's a lot of pain. And maybe all that you do to move this forward is you're the link that deconstructed and, and went through all that pain. And maybe then it's the generation after 
that has to really pick up the problem and go. The issue with that is like, what tools are we giving them to do that, right? Because they don't read scripture, they don't really know how to read scripture. So that's really not going to be a tool for them. And so what tools are we giving them to do that? And it's like, well, you know, hold this crystal and think about manifesting your being a millionaire and it'll happen. And it's like, well, that's not going to do it. And so, yeah, I, I've often thought that this might be something that that the kids will have to figure out because we're almost like a two trigger generation to 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 do it. But maybe that's my pessimism showing. So yeah. go ahead, Anthony. Yeah. So I'd give a shout out to John Ogden's Uplift Kids program because that does provide a framework for what we're talking about. Uh, that can, in terms of programs and stories and activities for kids that aren't necessarily religiously charged, uh, that can be used in mixed faith marriages and things like that. That's the first thought. The second thought is, you know, a lot of biblical scholars, when they look at the biblical texts, their conceptualization, even, even believing scholars like the Givens, their conceptualization of what Christianity was like around the time of Jesus and immediately following his death were decentralized groups that got together across socioeconomic class. It was a gospel and message of love. And they would sit together and they would repeat and tell these stories, the parables and the things like that. And that over time, what happened is Christianity drifted towards a more institutionalized, like the synagogue as an institution, more towards an, a, an institutionalized uh, dynamic. And that by the time a lot of the texts that ended up in the New Testament were cre created, the writers imputed back on in time uh, a more institutionalized hierarchical organization where, in fact, uh, that's not what it started out as. You know, it was small groups. And so some biblical scholars and theologians even suggest the answer to the future is small groups. It's, it's the pods or whatever you want to call it of, you know, 12 to 15, maybe 20 people that get together on a regular basis and they talk about, you know, these lessons and ideas of love and go forth with, without entangling in the problems with the patriarchy and the control and the individual and collective ego and things like that. My, my only hiccup there is that um, when you do things that are loosely knit and groups start and groups die and groups start and groups die is that information will never be consistently passed down. So we can do it that way. And again, by the way, I was just looking at, I shared it in the comments here, but I just was looking at um, the Uplift Kids website. And, and one of the things I love, right at the very top is right on his front page, resources for creating weekly spiritual experiences that build. And this, this to me, these three things are the things we're really trying to do. Wonder, resilience, and compassion. Create a, a collective resilience. Cre uh, create a, a collective awe and wonder on our inner selves in the outer world and create some sort of way in which we collectively help those who are on the margins or vulnerable in our society. And you can do those things without perpetuating specific pieces of information, but I think it is easier if uh, the collective good things that do that 
are added upon and passed along in loosely knit groups will constantly have to start over from scratch and rebuild it. And, and I think in that way, it, it, it loses something. So maybe the festival idea that he talks about or the periodic larger gatherings that provide kind of a, uh, kind of a greater myth, meaning a binding story or idea then supplements the more decentralized, I don't know. Uh, it's very organic and messy like evolution is, but this is social evolution that we're in the middle of. Well, and I actually like this because, you know, part of the problem of having the big institution and here's the wisdom and it is the wisdom is that we get so quickly stuck. I kind of like that each group has to go through. I mean, the nice thing is we live in an age where we've got a lot of wisdom that we have access to all the time. There's so many great people in this space with podcast books, lectures, all kinds of things available to us. I kind of like that each group gets to go through those. We don't have to to get hellbent on one particular message. Um, we can present a variety and everyone in the group gets to say, this is what resonated for me. This is what resonated for me. This one, not so much. And we're all adult enough to not have that become a problem that someone else disagrees with us in the group. This also just, I think one of the key elements, rather than really having the defining doctrine or the, the wisdom that we follow, is actually having, as Anthony mentioned, the ego dissolution for people to be able to understand that what we're looking for is to follow a message that resonates, not the person, not the book, not the whatever, that we have groups of support who are uh, emotionally in a place where we can support one another in differentiation. That's probably the bigger key, I think, are the people who've reached harmony. This is where we've started to do our inner work. And it is vital for any of these things to work going forward. Yeah. So let's go over. He actually in this section outlines like his five step plan for like how to do this. All right. And so I'll just go briefly over the five steps and then see what you think about his plan and if it would work or what you think about it. So the first one is uh, help churches that are willing to put all their assets into the church of the future. So if there's a church or organization around you that just says, you know what, I know that there's 70 year olds that are paying tithing that want to hear this. We're not doing it. We're going to invest all into where this is going. Right. We're not going to stay there just because, you know, there's some money and stability there. We're investing in the future. Pay attention to those groups. Um have denomination oh sorry go do, you think, ahead. do you think stage one and stage two gatekeepers are going to participate in that yeah and so he definitely said he said at some point i don't know if it was a different chapter that to expect that stage one and stage two are going to be like not okay with this and not happy and this is the narratives of what they're going to say and they're going to call you a heretic and they're going to blah 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 and we just compassionately say I, I know. <laughs> and I'm just going to keep going anyway, you know, and he almost just kind of, it's like, it's not ignore, but it's like when a child, I don't know when a child, you know, it's almost like this lovingly 
parental way of saying like, I know where you are. I know why you have to say that. I know how you're going to react and that's, and that's okay. And we're still just going to keep doing our thing over here. And you're totally invited to join us at any time, you know, and he just kind of expects that that is going to happen. And so you just keep going anyway. It's just noise at this point. And then the next step was, um, it would be a joint venture across denominations, which kind of build brought up, you know, there needs to be like, it would be so cool if you got some denominations to be able to work together to say like, let's do this thing. Right. Um, so that future churches will have denominational roots if they want them, like they still really love Jesus or they still really love Buddha, but they, um, but you know, the new kind of movement is free of control of, and politics of any single denomination. So it's not just Christian. It's not just whatever. Um, and then number three, new norms for finances, collective action, checks and balances, quality control. Um, we all know these. Uh, it'd be very easy. The four of us could write down a manual just based on our experience in our past organization of like, you know, Leader, adult men don't ask these kinds of questions behind closed doors. Done. It's in the manual. It's done. We don't have to go back there. It's like (laughs) we could, you know, it wouldn't take that part, I think, is easy. Like groups can write manuals that can, like, yeah, I'm only speaking of that part. Get read. Yeah. That part, like writing a manual that, that can get rid of some of the common, you know, hiccup places, putting some checks and balances in there. That I think is manageable. You can get some, you know, social science people to to do that and fine. Um, next one is organize around revolutionary love um, and have love, like, like Jana was saying, have love be at every level, whether that be a more simplistic message or whether you're in a paradox place. It's always um, you're looking at drawing inspiration from Alcoholics Anonymous and environmental organization and Black Lives Matter, labor unions, yoga studios, to just infuse love from top to bottom in the program, right? And then the last one was internal collaboration, sorry, intentional collaboration among and across traditions. So again, it's not just that uh, we're doing this love thing, no matter what our, our background is, it's also intentional collaboration across traditions so that um, you start to work together. In fact, I was talking with my dad over Christmas, he stayed with me and he's from Phoenix and they have this interfaith community organization, this kind of agreement and all of the churches, all of the different denominations, not just Christian, other denominations as well, will take turns doing kind of a soup kitchen. So like the homeless people can come to a central place, they get bused to a church and everybody takes turns and they get a meal and uh, somewhere to stay and some care if they need it. And then, uh, you know, they're, they're bused back to a central place. And so the churches all take turns and all of the churches in Phoenix do this except one. <laughs> And it was the Mormons who didn't get involved with that program. And it was like, you know, and so it's it's this call to, yes, we have our theological pasts, but we do need to start working together for this bigger idea of love, which is obviously bigger than any of us. So that was his kind of five-step plan. Thoughts there? Um, man, some of it, I think, is either easy or already done. When you look at that uplift kids, I mean, it very much 
again, it's not like a, the groups all collaborated, but John does a beautiful job of making a collaboration of various faith traditions and putting their wisdom into one place. It would be beautiful if you could get various faiths to submit their best ideas, uh, the things that really do help humans to be better. And, and it'd be, it would be incredible to kind of accumulate that. But like I said in the beginning, I really think that getting the existing entities to acknowledge that they're not the future, which they almost would have to do to agree to this, and to put their money there when most of them are led by, again, uh, stage one or stage two gatekeepers, I think you're asking for what is probably impossible at least on a wide scale. I mean, he pointed, there was a group within Islam that was doing it. He pointed to a few success stories, but, you know, to accumulate millions of dollars in order to build the next, the next thing that helps. I don't know. I, I, I struggle to see how that would happen. Yeah. I mean, it's, <clears throat> I don't know. It has not been done well in Mormonism. Let's put it that way. The breakoff groups that have come off of Mormonism do not have great reputation, right? So when I read that about the, the Muslim woman who basically just said, I'm an imam with a small eye. I did, she didn't have the training. She didn't have the say-so from the authority figures, right? But she's just like, no, we're teaching within this tradition and I'm just self-appointing. <laughs> that hasn't gone well so far. Um, and I think there are a million reasons for that and it's a discussion for another day. But um, in order to do that within the traditions that exist, I think you have to have some sort of maverick doing it. At some point, some Jewish person said, you know, what if we had some of us that weren't so orthodox? You know, and they just did it. I'm not sure that the orthodox people gave their blessing. I don't know. I don't know enough about the history. But I just think if you're going to hang on to those traditions, you've got to have some mavericks doing it without permission. And you also have to have a very bored congregation. Right. So it's like the combination of someone saying, like, I'm willing to take a risk here and I'm seeing this revolutionary love and I'm going to make a jump. Right. And then a congregation of like really bored, spiritually starved people who are like, OK, you know, it's worth a shot because I am going to shoot myself on this pew because it's so boring. So, you know, that that could happen. I have a question for you guys. Something that I think about a lot is. Uh, Bill and I once did an episode on Elaine de Baton, who is a British uh, guy who talks about this. And in, and in the kind of secular Europe, the churches have diminished so much that the future isn't books like this with Brian McLaren giving kind of a call to Christianity saying, let's go to this new place, right? Um, it's more of like, we have to do this now in government because like the churches are dead. And so there's no, there's no one coming to save us. So we need to do moral values in government and we need to have uh, meditation classes in schools. And so they're trying to push and he has a school of life and they're trying to push for a totally different route because they essentially say that the churches have failed in this project. And so now governments has have to take it on. And so Obviously, we need everyone on board in the project of revolutionary love. We need everyone on board in every religion and secular and non-religion. But I guess my question is, if you, for America, is, is, 
especially now we're talking about the Christian church best poised for this project? Or is it so fixated on the truth claims and then it got wrapped into politics and whatever that essentially it has to come through another vehicle, whether it be through government or completely privatized, like maybe the YMCA takes this on and you start seeing kind of like youth courses that are more like a seminary, you know, maybe you start doing it that way. And so there's like a privatized path and there's kind of a government path and there's a religious path. And I listen to the people talking in each of these paths and we need all of it, but I don't know which one is going to be the most successful thoughts there. I think about yeah, so my sense in in the United States in particular is that we have this culture of rugged individualism. And so uh, I don't think, I think that it's very unlikely that a centralized government thing would work in the United States because we just don't have that conceptualization that we would trust government to, to do that. Um, at the same time, um, you know, in the U.S., we have people like Rob Bell and Richard Rohr and John Schult Shelby Spong and Rachel Held Evans and others. And, and I think what there are examples of uh, is I individuals who have certain capacities and relationships go through these different stages and they step forward to to live a life focused on what he's referring to here as revolutionary love, and it becomes contagious over time. And if we're talking about an organization like a very strict evangelical organization, or if we're talking about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, my sense is what it takes is several of their top leaders who have the control to go through these stages. And 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 so similar to community of christ rlds transitioned to community of christ because enough of their leaders went through these stages and so they just decided they were going to do it and uh it was both good and bad but they i think they lost more than half of their members when they did it because the conservatives weren't ready for it right and so i think some institutional leaders are looking at what happens to mainline Christianity, what, what happened to Community of Christ, uh, what happens with uh, evangelical Christianity when people like Rob Bell uh, happen, um, and they're looking at that. But then we also have these institutional structures that are so enmeshed in money and power, and and uh, particularly in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, where, where our leaders are so aged, and they've got like grooves in their thinking that it makes it increasingly difficult to near impossible to, to go through the kind of thing of faith transition that we're talking about. I mean, it happens, but I think that would need to happen. So, I mean, imagine an amazing world where three or four of the most senior of the Q15 in the church go through these different stages and they've got over a hundred billion dollar war chest to do something about it. Yeah, there could be some amazing things done, huh? Like could really be. could change the world if if the people at the top motives were refocused on on doing the real good in the world. 
but they, I think they'd have to go through these stages. Yeah. And how would you, how do you take, how do you take stage one and two gatekeepers and get them to go through a faith crisis? And it, it is practically impossible. Again, when you're in their eighties and nineties, yeah. when you're living, when you're old and you, you already have your habits and your patterns and your beliefs, and you're already close to the end. And, um, and you have the power and influence that you do your livelihood or your standing de- depends on it. Um, we've had leaders in the past who, uh, within that faith system who spoke up and they didn't fare very well. It seems to punish those folks. Um, so it almost seems like you can't do it from within. It, it can't. But this is a generational thing, right? So like Gen Z is having a very different experience. Like, I think Gen Z wants the kinds of things that you were talking that you were talking about in terms of Arizona, in terms of making a difference in the world. And that for them, it's boring to go sit and learn about, you know, there was a single language on earth and then a tower of Babel and then a brother of Jared, like they, they want to actually go do something. And so maybe generationally from a social evolutionary standpoint, uh, we get there over time and maybe, you know, there are many pioneers along the way. All right. So in, in the effort of, or in the, what do you say in the something of time? Interest. In interest. interest. That's the word. I'm a little sleep deprived. And that's the first thing that goes for me is like words. Uh, in the interest of time, we'll go down <laughs> to uh, the next chapter. Uh, Cause we cannot do 45 minutes per chapter. So we'll keep this moving here which is theologies of harmony. And this is one where it's talking about how do we change theology in order to be able to do this project. Right. And so the concept was, you know, we need thousands of communities of harmony to be born and we need them soon for that to happen. We need some serious theological breakthroughs. And then in this chapter is when he talks about the inevitable pushback from stage one and stage two, he says, let's be frank stage one and stage two gatekeepers are not going to give us permission to explore this territory be faithful and to maintain their own integrity they must dutifully oppose us at every turn by all more moral means necessary and sometimes no doubt they'll slip beyond moral means and into their zeal and desperation don't expect to receive an award an award from them for doing what needs to be done at this critical moment no expect the gatekeepers to do their best to make you suffer for doing what they sincerely see as disloyal evil and wrong don't take it personally it's not about you it's how change happens so i thought that that was really interesting and then this is one where i saw a lot of optimism from him he you know the the community aspect is difficult right we're we're bringing up how hard this is going to be to pull off. Um, But the theology, he has a lot of optimism here for like, theologically, we have almost everything that we need for a revolution. We have people bored at church. We have the older generation dying. We have uh, a whole generation of Gen Z that have spiritual needs that are unmet and have this kind of mental health crisis as a part of that piece, right? and there's lots of people, you know, your your Richard Roars that are calling, like there's lots of these voices and we have access to these voices that are calling for this kind of revolution. And so there is some movement here. There is, there, there are some good things in this section. And one of the 
one of the leaders in this space, whenever we talk about um, this project is that we often look to the Jews because they've just been around so long that they have had to deal with this for a long time of how do we pass these values in this culture from generation to generation when every thousand years, the science and the truth claims can change because you just learn more and they've had to deal with that. And so I love this, this passage. He says, at some point they became, they, the Jews became sensitive to tensions and divisions in the Jewish community and found some of the actions of their fellow Jews deeply offensive and embarrassing, which ushered them as a community through complexity and perplexity. Eventually they found a way forward, learning to delight in the never ending give and take of conversation conversation in the willingness to stay. I don't know. I'm still seeking some of them having deconstructed old taboos are occasionally eating bacon just for fun. Eventually they perceive the wisdom at the heart of the Torah and the love at the heart of the prophets and the feeling of union that led the mystics into ecstasy. They heard Hosea speak for God. I desire compassion, not sacrifice. They heard Micah speak for God. What does God require of humanity? but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. And they came to know that most Jewish of treasures, faith expressing itself in mercy, compassion, kindness, and love. And um, there are some other groups that have, are doing this. There are some, you know, Sikh groups and Hindu groups, Baha'i groups that are, that are doing this. Um, and so there is hope that some of these old ancient institutions have had to wrestle with these problems. And then if you're a Jew in New York, it's totally appropriate for you to attend all of the cultural events and religious holidays and be an atheist and have concerns about certain truth claims. Uh, you could be a rabbi and be an atheist because they've, they've had to manage um, how to do this and how to make room for this incredible, you know, this changing group of people across time. So on this part, the theology piece, I see a lot of hope in this chapter. What do you guys think? So this is where I start putting in my plug for contemplation <laughs> because I see hope that it, in order for this to not just become a different kind of a stage one and two place, I think it does require contemplation. And what do I mean by contemplation? Um, contemplation is this big thing, but I think contemplation is when we are willing to get quiet enough to meet ourselves and reality and life and, and not try to silo things into good, bad, this, that. And we start to be able to hold the paradox. We talked about this earlier on, right? We start to hold that it is both this and that. And we start to hold, we don't have to be, um, we don't have to be certain. I was thinking about this this morning, and this is a totally untested analogy, so please push back. <laughs> I'm going to throw this out here, though. I, I kept picturing stage one and two people who live nearby this big bog and who are really just, they, they, their life necessitates that they come near to it, and they sometimes get the bottom of their, their, uh, their clothes kind of muddy and then they're really ashamed of that and then they have to find to quickly find some way to like wash them off because we kind of as Richard Rohr says Christianity has kind of become a cult of innocence a cult of purity um so we're always trying to keep ourselves clean and out of the muck and out of the bog and the difficulty of life um and sometimes people trip and fall in you know some people just get too close but it's something that's visible to us and to others and we just 
kind of see it and we start to get judgy. And and Richard Rohr talks about how when you're in this place of of purity or in this place of reward and punishment, we don't have the chance to actually heal. But I would also say we don't have the chance to actually get into reality. And to me, contemplation is being willing to meet reality. It's starting to recognize that if you're going to be going along the path, you are going to have to actually get straight in the middle of the bog. If you're going to ever help anyone else out of the bog, you have to get in the bog. And um, and I and I like this analogy for later on when we get to how people tend to get stuck in the bog. I think we do get stuck in perplexity. It is a, not an easy place to get out of. Um, but I, I think that when you you start to get through the harmony, you start to recognize that I actually don't have to wash all of this off of me. That life is going to take me into the bog. That there are places to resource to get my way through that bog. But the muck is going to stay with me. And I'm not going to judge it. But I am going to notice it. Um, and I think it requires bringing that kind of a mind frame where we are willing to get in the muck without this absolute necessity of getting out and washing it all off. That's that's what we're talking about because I think sometimes we think, oh, in harmony, we're just going to be happy and we won't have to criticize anything anymore and we won't see the critiques. We'll just be fine with all the things around us. And I just don't think that's how it is at all. I think that critique has to be a part, particularly, and he talks about this, self-critique is essential. But in order for that to happen, we can't be afraid of getting muddy. But if you're sitting in stage one and two, looking at all those people on the other side of the bog who aren't washing themselves off, it's, I mean, even the analogy makes me uncomfortable. Like, I'm like, go take a shower. Ugh. You know? I don't know. It, remind, it reminds me of the lecture that you do. I don't know if lecture is the right word, but the soapbox that you do about how um, we all have to kind of descend into hell to go to heaven and how even Jesus has to kind of meet the devil. And um, that path is is a holy path. And so how do you have a community that has the opportunity and even the encouragement that like you need to go to your darkest cave and you need to go to hell and you need to meet, meet Satan and you need to see evil for what it is, but also still value the holiness for what it is and that call back from it. And that that's, that's hard. That's just, that's an impossible question, you know, for a community to 100%. be able to do. hundred percent. But you, 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 <laughs> To bring us full circle, you did the very thing when you say like Jesus went into the desert and spent 40 days fasting and met the devil and was tempted in all the ways and overcame it. Again, the the, the myth teaches something that is deeply valuable. And and how do we hold on to that and just absolutely, you know, and again, and, and, and Jana, you pointed to this, like it has to be age appropriate. And so um, you have to teach these things as literal stories and then hope they don't grow into 90 or 15 white 90 year old men who continue to perpetuate it as a literal story that somewhere along the way you turn 12 or 14 or 16 and we wake people up to that. This was just a myth. And there's some other concept here. The garden of Eden's another gorgeous one of partaking of some substance that wakes you up. And now you are forced out away from your tribe to be on your own. Um, there's 
whoever whoever wrote the story originally knew what they were doing. And then everyone after became a manager who who liked the power that they had. I don't know. I don't... Yeah, hundred percent. And I, this yeah. is what I think. I think contemplation takes us to a place where we can see the existing theologies, the existing myths, in a more appropriate way, where it is not meant to control and keep you out of the bog. That that's what contemplation does for us. If we're going to build new theologies, I'm with Brian, and I and you know this is also I've studied with these people. Disclaimer, but I do believe that. There have been many, many people who have entered it through existing theologies, but they've done it through contemplation. So that we're not getting into this right, wrong, this, that, controlling, purity, blah, 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 that just takes us down a really bad place for maturity, for mental health, for growth, for for anything. And then we're back to everything should be done out of love, right? Like he says, love, and you said it too, love is the motive. It's the impetus. Everything should be wrapped around love. Um yeah. And I think deep contemplation takes us there. Deep contemplation takes yeah. away the clouds to realize that part of us that is that is love at our very core, at our very essence. I mean, I was gonna go Bill's direction too, like the 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 story of Jesus, like he's he's with the people who have leprosy. He's with you know, the sinners, he's with the tax collectors, you know, he's with the outcasts. And the only people he didn't like became the gatekeepers uh, of, of his, of his myth. Uh, you're right. The, in hypocrisy. And so, um, I mean, some of the thoughts are coming to my mind is it's really difficult to do this when you're in perplexity, but if, but if you're spending time in harmony, what I think tends to happen is, is people get attracted to the to the sense of revolutionary love and gratitude that that just hopefully you're exuding sincerely that you experience that for other people and people get attracted to that and people do amazing things when they when they do that and and people become attracted to that depth of gratitude and 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 unconditional love um, which is extremely threatening to the gatekeepers, right? Because so they got to find things that are wrong with you. Um, but over time, the more people that are doing that, that invite others into the, to participate in those experiences, like the ones in Arizona that Britt was talking about. Um, I think people over time get attracted to it, but this isn't something that gets fixed in a short order. Well, and I agree with all of this, and this is also where I get really squinchy when we talk about love, because again, we have this imagining that we'll just live in harmony and love forevermore and singing kumbaya and holding each other's hands, right? But honestly, it, I think in harmony, you have the capacity to be deeply, deeply, deeply troubled on a regular basis. I, I worked with a local um, Zen master. Um, and learned some things from her that were have been very, very valuable. But she says, you know, I always picture these little, um, you know, the Zen masters that sit and they're so Zen, they're just so Zen and they just, you know, nothing bothers them. And she's like, no, they are feeling probably more deeply than any of us. The difference is 
we're resourced. We're resourced through that love. We're resourced through that life energy. We're resourced through something to be able to handle the fact that we are deeply disturbed when we are in harmony. So that's just something I want to presence because I have people in deconstruction come to me all the time. It's like, well, just help me get through to this harmony thing. Yay, harmony. And I just have really, I always have to say, I've got really good and bad news for you. It just doesn't look like that. It doesn't, we're not going back to trying to purify ourselves into just, we're just going to be loving and everyone will be great. It just doesn't exist on that side. Yeah. So I want to share an observation that Lindsay Hanson Park shared with me uh, in the episode that we, that we did. And she talked about this Buddhist principle of growth comes through a thousand deaths and with each death is what you learn and you grow and so forth. And she shared that um, she has, you know, family members, maybe they're extended, I'm not quite sure, who get to a certain place in the church in Mormonism, where they kind of find a place of that's, that's somewhat static, like they, they're, they're comfortable, they fit, everything works. Every now and then, of course, they have trials in their lives. But there's no more death to any paradigms. There's no more there's no more doubt uh, stepping through that door in, into the darkness. And, and that seems like a very comfortable and desirable, you know, uh, place to be. And sometimes when, and I, I'm sure that exists in other traditions uh, beyond Mormonism, but I think sometimes we, like what you're referring to, Jana, is we have this desire that somehow we're going to fix it and we're going to get to another place of stasis and not go through another death. And that is not how it works. We, we need to go through death after death. We need to go through paradigms being crashed over and over again, because that's how we grow and develop, <laughs> right? We I need another that. existential crisis, you know? I don't, I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And you need it. <laughs> and I need it. It reminds me of like marriage. When Jenna was talking, I was thinking of this is why I hate like romantic comedies. Like I, the Hallmark Christmas movies, I can't do it. And I think it's because like it's so just infuriating to like, you know, the whole point of the show is like they have some obstacles and they get together and it's happily ever after. And we've arrived. We've arrived at the place where we support each other and we give each other flowers and and I found my soulmate. And it just makes me like physically gag. Like it makes me sick. I hate all romantic comedies. And because we all know that marriage is not like that. You know, you never arrive in marriage at, well, we're at love now and we're just going to sit in love now. And it's like, there's always little things. Like I always have kind of a conversation in my head that I need to have with my husband and my feelings get hurt and his feelings get hurt. And then I have to say, sorry, cause I see myself in his eyes and like that hurts. Cause that's ugly. I don't want to see that. And you know, that's what love is like, that is that that is love it's not the flowers and chocolates that you think you're gonna get when you know you're in the early stages and fighting and you just want to arrive there and i have that same sense about you know romantic comedies that that's you're not arriving anywhere just just stop yeah there's a lot of work ahead <laughs> yes that's why i can't stand them all right, all right. next one you guys ready 
All right, the next chapter is the spirituality of harmony for the rising generation. We can probably just do this one pretty quick because we've we've already touched on a lot of these. And it's teaching the children. And so he says, um, I think Jana said this, that we can't wait until stage four to introduce love. Love is like music, right? So you teach children the basics first, right? So, you know, a lot of children's books about, you know, when you see someone not playing, you know, how would that make you feel? And that kind of thing. And so you don't just wait until they're in stage four. And then you're like, now we do radical love. It's, um, it's, it's throughout just like you would do with music. You start with the notes and then you can, you know, do more complex things later on. And so he says, children would find it as natural as breathing to recognize and love God in creation, in their companions, and in themselves, if only faith communities would help them to do so. But most faith communities immerse children in books and doctrines instead. And I once did a project, it was part of my master's degree, to go through, um, I was part of, I'm part of a group called Open and Relational Theology, which is all this kind of revolutionary love God movement. It's part of that. And um, the project was to go through all of the major children's books about religion and spirituality and highlight the ones that really had uh, love and the idea that God can't um, do everything and uh, not a controlling kind of God and not a jealous kind of God and kind of separate the two and come up with a list of like, these are the best children's books. And then, and I, for like a whole summer, I was just reading children's books and there are a lot, like in the past five years, there's just been this huge explosion of uh, new books because people are wanting better God books for their kids. And I think that there is a response to that. Um, and then there was also a ton, like before five years ago, most of the books were like, and Jonah made a bad choice. So God sent a whale and ate him. And it was like, now that I'm reading this, like that is horrifying, <laughs> right? That is terrible. Anyway. And so I do think that there's some good movement in this area that like, we need to have better books and better stories for for our kids, but some of those old narratives that we're giving to children are are quite scary and something that we want to be aware of. So, and just a plug, I mean, you and I are going to interview sometime in the next couple of weeks, Andrew. I Newman, think next week, yeah, yeah, who's written a, a whole collection of books that are from the wisdom kind of wisdom part of our perspective uh, for children. And by the way, I'm a huge fan of his. You said we were going to do this interview, and this one just came in this week, but I've ordered like ten for. Uh, both of my my kids who have my grandchildren, and uh, I just want them to have access to books that teach a better set of ideas. And so this conversation with Andrew Newman is right up that alley. This is yeah, and this is one of the things that one of the benefits of deconstruction because I think ten years ago, like he wouldn't exist or wouldn't mm -mm. be as popular as wouldn't he be is today. Because, but people deconstructed their idea of God and then had kids and then there's a need and there's people and it's starting to fill that need. So the it is dad who didn't know, you know, like, like, why can't we admit we don't know stuff? Why can't we admit that we're also seeking for answers and we don't have certainty? And anyway, yes. All right. Thoughts, uh, Jana? Yeah, I got thoughts. Um, one thing I love that Brian did here 
is he named this, like I said, we tend to want to teach from our stage of development and not to their stage of development. And it's something that he did very subtly, but very well throughout this chapter is acknowledging that we do need to teach, teach simplicity to children. We, you can't short circuit this stuff. They do need rules. They do need rules of right and wrong. We just need to presence it in the through the, the lens of love, in service of love, rather than the because I told you so, which leads you to the authoritarian control of trying to mold a child rather than allowing a child to develop naturally through these stages and, and providing a way that we very intentionally allow them to go through the stages. We talked about how we do that through simplicity in simple rules, how we do that through complexity at, at an age-appropriate place where they can hold more and understand more and we can teach them to think through stages of gray and, and in circumstance and putting one value above another and then actually teaching them perplexity. This is just something that I think would blow the mind of any religious person in this country is actually teaching people to critique teaching them to critique the institutions and the rules and the things, everything they've learned to get at really to understand how to be a critical thinker. And, and I love that he puts this in here when they are ready to also allow them to critique themselves and do that in a safe place. We know this with mental health. We know that the most successful people are people who understand that mistakes, they don't beat themselves up over the mistakes. They don't take the shame of it. They take it as a learning process. And that's what you can do if you are critiquing from a lens of love. If you're criticizing out of pain, it is a very different thing than critiquing out of love. And so taking people through all of those stages pro provides um, a pathway through those stages of development into harmony. And I love that vision. I think it's amazing. I don't, I, I don't know how to actually do it. <laughs> I think, but I think there's an invitation here for some really wise people, um, and I do think Uplift Kids is trying to to be mindful about this kind of stuff. But that's that's I think the invitation that he's throwing out to us is how do we usher people through all of these stages through a lens of love, with one foot in the all of it being in service of, of love, like a stage for harmony person um, from the beginning. One one thing that I really liked about this particular chapter is he really emphasizes the importance of time and experience with nature to spiritual development. Um, and in many ways, it kind of rhymed or resonated with things that I got from Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth uh, with regard to um, uh, more being more contemplative and aware and, and so forth. And so... Um, so Brian explained how important it was for him. He talks about when he was in deep uh, perplexity, being outdoors was really helpful for him. And that really resonated with my own experience. When I was deep in my faith crisis, like the very best thing that I did was get up at 530 in the morning. It was the summertime and go out and go on really long walks in nature. And uh, it was just a very healing Thing. And as I was reading this particular chapter, I, I question as to how much experiences as a society we're giving to our children in terms of time and nature, because it's easy to, you know, put 
a tablet or a video in front of them to babysit them or, you know, things like that, as opposed to go out and go on a hike and things like that. All right. Anything else before we move on, Bill? All right. So next one, we have two more chapters and we'll wrap up here. Um, I think these will go quicker because we're hitting on all of this kind of all at once. So harmony is a survival strategy. So he's talking about it's it's not like that it would just be nice if the kids could get some of these, you know, tools and have this idea of radical love. And um, it reminds me of something Jordan Peterson says where he says, you know, you don't tell kids not to go to hell and make bad choices because you want to control them. You do that because you don't want them to get burned. Right. So you do, like Jenna says, you do set up order and structure and rules, but it comes from a place of like, these things will hurt and I love you. Right. And I don't, you know, this, this is a bad path for you and I'm going to help you as your mother. Cause I love you. It's a totally different approach than, uh, or else God will send a whale to eat you. Right. That's, that's a different approach. So he's talking about harmony as a survival strategy. And this, this point I thought was really interesting. This is why I, I listened to a lot of atheist, uh, and, uh, Christian debates because he says uh, there is no institution systematically helping people to achieve moral development. That's why I can't give up on faith and faith communities. And so you have two these two arguments that I think are really interesting. This is just how I'm meeting this because I'm always thinking about this problem. And you have atheists that say people are you know, evolutionarily, we want to be good people and we want to help others. And um, that's natural human nature and you can develop that in education and studies uh but to get a good person to do a bad thing you need religion so we just need to get rid of all religion because in order for a mother to kick out a gay child that it takes religion to to make that kind of jump and so we should just get rid of all of it and then the argument you know from the other side and one that that is convincing for brian mclaren is that there is no other institution that is doing moral development that's why we have to save this. That's why we have to salvage this because there is no, uh, we don't have anything else ready to go as far as uh, moral development, especially for children. And so he says, we encounter and love God in our neighbors and we are loved by God through our neighbors. What this vision means for organized religion is it invites individuals and congregations into a radical version from organized religion to or which is religion organized institutionally for itself to organizing religion, which is religion organizing its staff and members as a spiritual, social, economic, political, ecological movement for the good of all and making that shift because especially in America, there is no one else poised to fill in that role of moral development. And so the religions have to, do this and make this shift. And the old colonial message is join my religion or be tortured in hell. The new message is you can bring and embody goodness for the poor, comfort for the brokenhearted, recovery of sight for the blind and liberation for the oppressed and imprisoned. You are needed. You are wanted just as you are with all your questions and doubts. Uh, your question, In fact, your questions and doubts are among your greatest assets. And so I thought that that was an interesting argument, especially in this time where more and people are becoming nuns or agnostic. And it's this question of, is do we need to salvage this for society 
or is there is there another path that's going to be an easier kind of hurdle to get through? Anyway, those were my thoughts. Like I, as you're as you're talking about this, I'm 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 thinking about the moral development of people, right? On one hand, and this is an age old question of what our actual human nature is, right? I tend to believe that very religious people think that our human nature is actually quite evil, and we have to learn all of these rules and beat people into their goodness. Um, I think some of the atheists, as I understand it, it's more of like, no, this our human nature is good and. And we really don't need that. And you just need to get out of people's way. And I think for me, laid on top of all of this is just the fact that being human is hard and we're growing up in traumatized bodies that our nervous system has taken on trauma in one way or another. So it's hard for me not to see this through a lens of trauma and privilege. Like, I think there are actually families with good privilege that haven't had ridiculously huge traumas that actually don't need a religion to teach goodness to their children because they're just, it's more of a, of a freedom from the, the difficulties. I, I think there are certain probably portions of our world and our society that that's not enough because they've been so historically traumatized um, or individually. And those are the people that I am up at night worrying about actually of what we do for them. And then we get back to your question of what is the best way to heal people? Is it religion? Is it government? Is it social programs? Is it safety nets? Is it, and it, it all does come down to love and compassion. If we would be better served to serve everybody, if we came at it from this place of love and compassion. It reminds me, yeah, there's this joke that, you know, jokes have that little kernel of truth that they're playing with. And there's this joke that Neil Brennan says that atheist is the peak of white privilege because people will come up to an atheist and say, you know, are you interested in this afterlife? And, you know, the atheist goes, no, I'm okay. How much better could it be? And it's, you know, it's funny. It's a joke. But there was like this kernel of truth there that, um, uh, you know, when you talk about even black Christian communities, which have a totally different history and a totally different story, um, because there's a lot of, you know, salvation narratives and justice narratives, um, that have been important for that community's survival and to go in and just take that away. What would that really do for the world? Would that really make the world a better place? Like, that's an interesting question too. And so that I'm glad was you brought that up. That was something that hit me like a ton of bricks at the, um, oh, what's the name of the, the African-American Museum, the National African-American Museum N-double, in D.C.? NAACP? The new, no, the, the oh. new museum in Washington, oh, D.C. I don't know. There's a new museum. I mean, it's maybe five, six years old now. And I visited that and it tells a very thorough, I mean, I highly recommend it to everybody to go see this. But one thing that hit me like a ton of bricks, they're telling a very thorough history. They're telling you a very complicated history of who Thomas Jefferson is, right? Um, That is very different than what you got growing up. But what I noticed were the, how important the religious movements have been for African-American people. National Museum of African-American History and Culture in DC. There it is. Okay. Everyone should go through this thing. And, you know, here I am, this little privileged 
girl walking through, you know, with all of my deconstructed feelings about God. And then I hit these, these places where there's a, you know, a quote on the wall that is just all about God. And it is the salvation of this person. It is what gets people through when you are thrust into the bog and kept there. You know? And so I just remember thinking there, like all of, I, it was a very similar thing. And I love the way that you, you brought that up, Britt, because I totally agree. I think that there is privilege to atheism. There is privilege to this thought that we do not need religious religions to help us through. Now, I don't know. What we really need is love. What we really need is harmony, I think. And whether it's expressing it through religion or secular groups or governments or privatization, what we need is people operating in harmony through all of that. That's a great little, let's just build, grab that tagline for the episode. That was just, that was good stuff. Yeah, one of the commenters mentions that the secular camp also has caused trauma, and that's absolutely true. There's dysfunction throughout, right? Anytime you get human beings together. Yeah, and I think of, I think of, you know, there seems to be this pattern where, like, there was a generation that were hippies, you know, with the free love movement and hippies and so forth. They didn't get a job and so forth. Their kids were more likely the ones to seek out organized religion because of the experiences that they had being raised by hippies. And um, so we, it seems like we cycle back and forth. It's just like, it's this long social evolutionary process that we're in the, you know, we're part it's like, of. It's an order and chaos thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A pendulum. It's a pendulum that I, I really do believe. And this is the whole point of this book and why I highly recommend it and put it on your rotation to read it every few years because it will mean something different because it mean, meant something very different to me today than the first time I read it when it was published. Um, it, it is contemplation. It is contemplation and love and harmony. It is faith expressing itself through love. That is what he's trying to get us to see. And this is why I say it's, it's said at the beginning, why I gave that disclaimer of why it's fraught. Because when I tell tell people that faith is going to save the world, the people in deconstruction want to just go over to the corner and throw up a little. I mean, I get it. I get it. I do too. But we have to, I don't know. I wish there was a better word to use than the ones that we've got, right? Because what he's talking about is not faith as expressed through belief that that's where our minds default to. It is not the Christian God that we have built up in our head that we're talking about when we're talking about this in harmony. Yeah, but language. I'm, the language is always hard. I so hard. I I tiptoe in. I talk about. I have conversations about God literally almost every day, and I tiptoe because it's like, uh, I I now I you know I understand that place. Is there a better word for that that I could use so I could because I'm I'm meaning this and I don't want it to mean that. And the the language gets really tricky because we don't because all of this spiritual language has you know, thousands of years of, of baggage around it. And so the language gets tricky. A hundred percent. I mean, one of the things I've been doing a, a year long program with Mark Nepo. I don't know if any of you are aware of who he is. He's a poet, contemplative dude, recommend his poetry. He's great. One, one of the things that happened in, he tells this story 
Um, and I say this because of how hellbent we are in this country and in religious circles in talking about truth. We've kind of been, uh, we kind of focus only in on one kind of truth, which is objective truth. And we kind of forget about subjective truth. But he tells this story about, and, and I like to tell this story to help people understand what I mean by God and truth and faith on this other side. Um, Mark likes to give a really deep question, give it to you and have two people split off and discuss it, right? So he, he gave this the people um, a question of what do you, what is true for you? Tell me what is true for you. And there was a mother and a son who were there. And the son was in a place of absolute perplexity. And, you know, when it came to him trying to say this, he's like, I don't think anything's true. And the mom was so upset, you know, and triggered by that and went to Mark and was like, how can I even have this conversation with him? How can I have this conversation? He doesn't think anything's true. And he says, well, you might ask him what it's like to be a person who goes through the world not knowing what is true. And then later on, a woman got really vulnerable in the group and was sharing how she had lost her son, who was roughly the age of this boy in the, in the group a, a year ago from cancer or something. And she, you know, it was, it was very moving to the group as she shared her, her grief. Once they got to a break, this young man stood up, walked over and gave her a big hug and they sat and embraced. And Mark said to that boy, whatever got you to get up and walk over there, that is true. I think we have to broaden our definitions of what we're talking about because that is the, that is an example of harmony. I don't, I don't care what stage anybody's at. That is harmony. And it's so squishy. You can't even put a definition around it. Right. But that is true. That is God. That is faith expressing itself through love. That's what we're talking about on the other side of this. And it is the thing that will save us. I uh, I was in a conversation with Thomas McConkie. I've, I've shared this before on podcast conversations, but um, we were doing an interview on development, kind of the Ken Wilbur spiral dynamics stuff and talking about those various colors and what they mean. And there was a moment where Thomas, we were talking about ethnocentricity, tribalism. And he said, you know, there was a moment, Bill, where, where ethnocentricity came into the world and saved the human population. And I had to sit and think about that for a minute. Like there's this stage of development that I hate. And when it came on the scene, it probably gave us new tools that actually saved humanity. Um, as you're pointing out, there's something new happening and it will, if we figure it out again, it, there are arguments that we're already past the point of no return, that the environment's already been decimated and we don't understand it yet. But once you take certain things out of the food chain or certain um, uh, certain um, processes that support each other and how our environment works, that you essentially get this crash that's going to happen. And maybe we're already past the point of we can't prevent it. But like you said, this whatever this is, and you, you also said we couldn't exactly name it, but whatever this is, 
getting to this new place that human beings stop assuming that someone has certainty about the things that are unseen make space for humans to be diverse and to recognize that such is really beautiful and to help us all lean into being healthier with each other and how we react and respond almost assuredly will be the tool that will be needed to save the human race. Beautiful. Amen. This is, this is the quote that I got from the book about this. Perhaps we're coming to a place where we see the survival value and even the survival necessity of stage four, stage four faith, faith after and with doubt, the faith of harmony, integration, connection, solidarity, wisdom, contemplative action, and moral intelligence. The faith whose fruits are not hostility, but love, not anxiety, but joy, not win-lose competition, but peace, not panic or apathy, but patience and persistence, not judgment, but kindness, not greed, but generosity and goodness, not betrayal, but faithfulness, not self-centeredness, but self-control faith that expresses itself in love. I mean, I don't think any of us can argue with that, right? The whole question is, how do we do it? And that's what we're here saying, man, I don't know. <laughs> it's going to take a lot. I did get a lot more hope and you're right. I got more, I got different things out of it the second time that I read it in preparation for this, but I did get a lot more hope of like, you know, like Bill was saying, like we, we've had big problems and we've survived and we there's this kind of collective consciousness and we grow as a human race and change and develop new skills. And we've only been a global community for what, 30 years. Like that's nothing. Like that's nothing. That's a blink of an eye. That's not even a blink of an eye. Right. And so, you know, it did give me hope that like, yes, this is a challenge and we've deconstructed. And um, so there's this place where there's a big fundamentalist response. And then there's kind of this nihilism place of, of, you know, even young people losing hope and having existential despair and not feeling like it's worth it to be alive much earlier, going through that much earlier than, you know, past generations. But, you know, he framed it as like, here's, here's the problems. Here's some plans and some ideas, some things that I see that are happening that are good and good signs. And uh, this is what can happen on an individual level and family level and community level. And I don't know, I came away with just a lot more hope of like, this is our generation's problem, but we've solved problems before and survived at least. Uh, maybe, maybe it's not the end quite yet. Maybe. One, one thing that I experienced in toward the end of the book is it seems like for me, something shifted where it was like I was sitting in a group witnessing his journey and like he was being vulnerable and, and I was like holding space for how he was reconciling things uh, without being able to say whether or not it's going to work out that way. But it, I felt like I was witnessing his experience. I don't know if anybody else experienced that with the book, but that's one shift that happened for me. There's a quote that I want to share. Um, it, it, it's at the end of the book. Um, I shared it on social media today. It really resonated with me, and it ties into somewhat of what Jana was sharing. Um, and, and this is what he writes. I often grieve the losses that have come through the stages of faith, but other times it dawns on me that what I have left are the best things, 
even though I'm not always sure if I'm miserable or ecstatic, I know that I'm alive. I know you have already experienced that aliveness. It may have been for a fleeting moment at the birth of a child, the death of a parent, an experience of profound sexual intimacy, a sublime turn in a symphony or a poem or a film, or an act of self-giving. It may have come to you as you looked out the window of a train or an airplane, or as you walked along a hiking trail, when, your bo- when you body surfed a curling wave at the beach, or as you held or nursed your newborn child. You may have hardly even acknowledged that little moment because it was so foreign and odd on the other hand, or so personal and intimate on the other. It may have even scared you a little bit or embarrassed you or even made you feel guilty because it didn't fit into the small boxes of simplicity, complexity, or even perplexity. But whenever it came and however it felt, you knew you were alive and you knew that life was precious, holy, and sacred. You knew that you could put into, you knew more than you could put into words. You felt in your marrow that every single thing was priceless and profound and beloved. I just love that quote um, because that's my experience. Um, Man, we're, we're kind of getting right towards the end here. And one of my biggest fears, it is this, this isn't a religious problem or solution that we're trying to come up with. This is, Really, how do we give humanity the tools to progress and be good to each other in a way that supports every human feeling uh, at least the bare minimum of what it takes to be okay in the world and to not be overwhelmed by all the stuff that happens to us? We were just at, uh, I was at a friend's house last night for a party. We were watching the NFL football game. And if anybody, if you've been paying attention to the news, a player had a cardiac arrest on the field and man i just the way i thought 10 years ago if i would have watched something like that versus now i just sat there with i just like kind of leaned into like what are his teammates feeling what are his parents in the stands feeling what is my friend who on just a small level is a fan of the team and and what is he what is he feeling and just sensing like all the trauma that's in this world that you can't escape just being born into this world is tra- is traumatic to both the mother and the child. And from that day forward, it will just be trauma until the day you take your last breath. And what can we do as a race of people, the human race that is obviously, that we can minimize as much as possible the trauma th- so that people aren't feeling any unnecessary or unintentional, sorry, intentional or unnecessary trauma. And my worry is that where we have these cycles where, you know, countries uh, originate, they progress to a certain point, they limit or allow freedom of thought and expression, but it has these constraints and there's this push and pull. And then it gets to the point where enough people are fed up that they try to create something new. And inevitably what they do is they kick whatever it is back to some lower stage of development. And so now people are hunting and gathering again to some extent. And that cycle has played out a thousand times, if not more. Like like people go like, oh yeah, we're American and this is the United States of America. And 
people don't realize how young this country is and whether you like it or not, it almost certainly has an expiration date. Um, and if you could picture, for instance, the Ukraine-Russia war, and if 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 Russia uses nukes, imagine if they use nukes in the United States. First off, we all know that a certain amount of nukes cause like uh, nuclear fall, autumn, or nuclear winter, and then that's that's the end of most of us as we speak. But if Ukraine or if Russia hit just a few specific locations, L.A., New York, wherever, pick four or five of the big ones, what would inevitably happen is that this country would then split into little countries again that try to protect their own interest. And then we're, we're right back to worrying about bigger things than higher learning and further stages of develop. It just It just retracts back into something lesser. So if we don't destroy ourselves altogether or we don't knock ourselves down into something lesser and start all over again, I don't know. I, I just, I sit and look at all of it and I don't think people realize just how fragile and precarious it all is. I agree with you. And I, I think for me, if I'm going to kind of just sum up um, some of these thoughts that kind of plays off of that bill, I, I agree. I think in my, you know, when all I had access to was stage one and two, most of the time, I think I just always had this simple faith that everything was always going to work out. You know, it's, it's going to work out the way it's supposed to work out. Um, I I've lost that safety blanket on this side of things. And I, yeah, I think we could be past the point of no return and nukes could fall tomorrow. I mean, we're in a, I think we're in a very precarious place as humanity in, in our, in our history right now. And all of that can make us feel very small, very hopeless. Um, what do we do? How do we move forward? Because of the degree of uncertainty. And this is where it is necessary for our survival to have communities, regardless of the outcome, that are helping us move through today, regardless of what happens. Because I think when, we, when we're trying to make something happen, because we've got to save the world or we've got to do this because we've got to have it end this way, or we've got, I don't know, we've got to have these circumstances in life for all people. It's a losing proposition. And there is a counterintuitive wisdom that, you know, shout out to my wisdom traditions, but that Buddhism and Christianity at its core that Jesus taught and taught and is this counterintuitive lose your life to find it. That is so hard to understand. Um, from simplicity. But I came across this, um, I shared this on Instagram last week, but I came across this, I don't even know who this this person is. I just, Instagram brought it up for me and I, I reposted it, but I love it because it explains, it, this is a microcosm. This happens to be about meditation. I'm a fan of it. It's not for everybody. I don't think it's the salvation, but it teaches this very specific counterintuitive wisdom that only opens up in this this uh, faith expressing itself through love. So the person who um, tweeted this or posted on Instagram is Corey Mascara. And he says, don't meditate to find peace. I think that's what most of us do. This is what we start out. We meditate to find peace. We, we engage religion to build morals and save the world and, you know, whatever. He says, don't meditate to find peace. Meditate to meet reality. By meeting reality, you'll develop clarity and acceptance. With clarity and acceptance, you'll soften the need to run from what is true from yourself. 
By softening the need to run, you'll find stillness. And in stillness, there will be peace. We get to what we want, but we don't get there the way that our brains want to imagine we do, which is why we need contemplation. So my advice to people is how do we make it through this world? You do that. You, you do your best to meet reality. If that's meditation, if that whatever your practices are, do your best to do that. And that ignites a creative fire that helps us deal with all of the uncertainty. And in the end, it's our best bet anyway. The, the final thoughts for me, that was really good. The final thoughts for me is just, um, you know, we've kind of touched on like life is hard. And like when you arrive at love, like you're not really anywhere, <laughs> you know, it's life is still going to be a wrestle and it's going to be all the things. Um, but I, I kind of go back to a shift for me in making the shift from despair into kind of hope um, is that there's no other time in human history I'd want to be alive. It's a fun project, no matter what happens, right? So in 1800, you know, Jana and I would have had eight children. Half of them, more than half would be dead. We'd be living on less than a dollar a day in today's money, right? Uh, one of us would have died of typhoid. You know, it would have just been this idea of like talking about these concepts, spending our day talking about these things would have just been so unknown, right? And so I, I kind of got to this place that uh, this is where we are. This is the cultural zeitgeist. We're deconstructing. And with that, the two big dangers that are a threat to human society is fundamentalism, which is dangerous, which could kill us, right? Someone could strap a bomb to themselves and do a lot of damage and all, all, all kinds of things can happen with on the fundamentalist side. And then you have the nihilism side, which is what is the point to even being alive and suffering and all of this. And suicide is a real threat right? When you look at gun numbers and gun deaths, you know, we don't see how many of those are, are suicides. And it's, it's, it's a terrifying number by itself. And I just kind of had this shift of what an interesting project, what an interesting project for myself to find that balance between order and chaos, right? To help my children find some tools to be able to navigate that, to have my little Boise community community and talked with Bill about these things. And we bring people on the podcast and we ask these kinds of questions and, you know, there's lots of changes and zeitgeist that humanity has gone through. And I'm kind of, at the end of the day, I'm glad that I get to be alive for this one, no matter what happens, because what else are you going to do? You might as well throw yourself into the project because what else are you going to do? You're just going to sit back and watch everybody else try to figure it out for their own lives. Like what's, you may only get one. And so the, the last quote that stands out for me is, among all the other things, doubt is loss, loneliness, a crisis doorway, descent, dissent, but it is also this, a crossroads. At the crossroads of doubt, we either become better or bitter, cynics or sages, hollow or holy. And I did have a, a period of a couple of years where I was bitter and cynical and hollow and was kind of stuck there. And the shift into 
to, you know, the choice to be a part of this project, this love project that may fail on multiple levels. <laughs> it's hard, <laughs> but it seems like a worthy project to put your life towards because, you know, what else are we going to do as people who live during this time? And so at the end of the day, I've, I've shifted there and I'm not as cynical and bitter as I used to be in this space. And I think, I hope that means that that crossroads for me ended up going into good places. And so if it was possible for me, maybe it's possible for everyone. And I'll, I'll hold on to that and try to keep my cynicism at bay. Name a better moment in the history of this planet that there is a good, healthy environment for good ideas to be heard and spread. Yeah. Have you seen like the petticoat, like the, like how women in the 1700s had to get dressed? Like, absolutely not. I am in sweatpants under no circumstances. I would go through a faith crisis a thousand times before I do that. No birth control. Absolutely not. No, thank you. I'll take this. I'll take this project any day. This is, this is a good project to be a part yeah. of, I think. <laughs> I'm grateful, grateful to be a part of it for sure. All right. Any last thoughts? Okay. So part two, I thought we were in awe and wonder part three. There was some pessimism mixed in with some hope. I, I think we covered the <laughs> but whole that's life. Yeah, that's life. Yeah. It's hard. And there's, here's some things that are hard and problems that we don't have answers to. And here's some things to hope for. And, you know, that's just a good dosing of life right there, I think. And, and yeah, go ahead. I, I just think, I just want to put a shout out, I mean, to all the people that I work with and to so many people who are just in the, the mire of deconstruction. I think it is good to give give hope to that. Like, I think we spend a lot of our time defending our, our doubt and that it is a good thing because we get very defended, you know? And I think it's just relaxing into... A comfort that we know that it's not something we have to defend anymore but just to give hope there is there is a way through this it is not pain-free uh but it's you know there is a place where we can get stuck in the critique we become addicted to the critique we get addicted to the moral indignation and there's a lot of healing to do and you know we just need to be here for each other and allow one another to do it rather than trying to force our way through to something better. But I don't know. It's a, it's a tough place to be. It is hard. I'm still there a good portion of the time and it's good for me to read this book. It is, you know, it's been sitting there on my shelf. I read it. I know it's there, but it's good for me to engage conversation like this and books like this because it gives you a glimmer of, oh, there actually is a way to get through that without totally denying my experience where I can hold on to my moral indignation without getting lost in it, I guess. We had this question that says, but how do you get up on fast and testimony Sunday and bear your testimony with regards to simplicity, complexity, and perplexity? There was one time towards the end of my experience, um, 
before I kind of chose to take my family in a different direction where I said, I'm going to be a part of the change here and I'm going to do something hard, right? Because we all want someone else to do it. And it's like, well, and then you look around and realize, I think the best person to do this is me. And so I got up on fast and testimony meeting and I said uh, something I, I said, I think I used a scripture to help kind of buffer me up, but there's a scripture that says to some it is given to know and is it to some it is given to believe. And so I just stood up and said, I don't know. I'm not a knower. I don't, there's a lot of these things that I just, I, I don't know if they're true or not, but here's what I think is true. I think that blah, 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 blah. And I shared a few truths that still resonated with me. And that was my testimony. I don't know, but I love the story about Jesus and it's still uh, had an effect on me this week. In fact, Bill and I last week or two weeks ago shared our favorite Jesus stories. And it's one of the best Jesus lectures I've ever heard. And we're just talking about stories that we still love about Jesus. Right. And I stood up and just said, I don't know, but here's something. And I had, so, you know, and I had a lot of people come up and just say, thank you for that. And so I think, I think honesty is a true way forward. The more in community, we can be honest you know, some of the, a lot of that comes with contemplation because that's your time to be honest with yourself. Um, and then you have to start being honest with people around you and then honest in community in your community. But honesty is a huge part of the engine that's going to drive this forward is when we stop looking at each other and pretending that church is super fun and I'm getting uh, so much out of this. And I believe all of this because there's more people who are not there than we realize. And only honesty kind of drives that forward. So that's, that's yeah. how I would answer that question. I would say, yes, there it's, it's a combination of vulnerability and humility, um, self-critique and love. Um, because I, I don't think everyone is called to this. I don't think you have to do this, you, but if you, I have given a testimony like this in the past. Um, I was probably firmly in perplexity, but I, looking back, I was tapping into, um, harmony in what I said, because I said, I don't know what I believe, but I do believe that love heals, you know, it, I, that is something that I do believe. And, um, and I don't know, I, I think in the book, there's actually a great example of Brian doing this in this place of, from this place of vulnerability that Anthony mentioned, right? That struck him, which is from, some, you know, get up and say, from simplicity, this is how I felt. From complexity, this is how the world looked. From perplexity, this is what came in. And then in harmony, this is where I am. And this is where I gain my inspiration. I think there's absolutely a way to do that. But it, it does take vulnerability and you have to be resourced enough to be that vulnerable because I am telling you that when I gave that testimony, the consequences of that was something I was not prepared for. And it was both good and bad that I, I wasn't necessarily personally, emotionally ready to deal with the parts that were hard. So I, I don't think anyone should feel like they have to do this, but I also agree with you, Britt. I think that when we all get more vulnerable and we all get more honest, we, we make our way toward this kind of a community. I, I'd, I'd answer to David that it was, it's a lot longer than a testimony, but I tried to do that in my TEDx talk earlier this year to walk people through these different stages of simpl simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony. Um, and that's what I tried to do in my TEDx talk.
All right. So wrapping up here, I think for our audience and our audience is people who have some level of doubt. If you're listening to us, if you found me and Bill, right? Um, and so I just love to leave with you this this hope that doubt is a lot of things. We've we've cried. We've also expressed how we've grown, um, and it's a crossroads. And it's like this. You see it in in all these ancient stories, you know, the story of the phoenix or something like that, that at these crossroads, that's when you become better or bitter, cynic or sage, hollow or holy. It's this invitation. And so although I may not totally agree with all of, you know, Brian's beliefs or maybe some of his thoughts, this invitation to choose love over despair and to be a part of this project individually and in your family and in the community and in the world, because what this is our project. This is this is the project of our generation. Um, what else are you going to do? What else are you going to do? So I think I can respond to his invitation with just a little bit more hope that there's other people who are seeing this, that, you know, this, this process that we're a part of, they're seeing the dangers on both sides. There's people like you that we can sit together and talk to. Um, and that just gives me a, Hey, this is a worthy project to be a part of. And it's an invitation to all you doubters to have that be something that catalyzes you to really beautiful places of radical love that can really change the world. So good book. Beautiful. Love it. Anything else? Yeah. So next week, uh, Bill and I are talking with Andrew Newman of Conscious Stories. The week after, we're talking to a professor um, who teaches about free will, and we're going to do some free will debates. Um, Lots of stuff coming down the pipeline that are going to be a mushroom shaman. A shaman's. Last week, you did a sound bath lady. Email mushroom shaman. You know. It's been about a year, Bill, that you and I have been podcasting and because we're just in this space of this project. And I kind of thought, like, I don't know how much material I'm going to have after like a year or two. But, you know, there's there's so many aspects to this. There's so many people who have good ideas, who are trying things that I'm curious about. And, you know, this guy, he's making books for kids to read at night. I want to hear his story. I don't know about his personal story. And so, you know, Bill and I are going to keep hanging out so long as there's somebody listening and... Hopefully you've been able to to donate to support uh, what we're able to do here. So, yeah, it is awesome. I think we raised about six thousand dollars, a little over six thousand dollars this year, uh, in the Almost Awakened podcast. And uh, the year before was like three hundred bucks. And so yeah. it's growing, and it's fun to watch this happen. Um, I really think folks are folks are always complaining on the inside of the system that we came from that we help them tear it down, but we don't give them anything to build back up. And I think the Almost Awakened podcast, I think the work that Jan and Anthony do, um, combined with kind of all these voices in this space that are saying like, look, let's let's give you something more. I think that complaint is dying be- or, or it's misplaced because I think yeah. there are lots of folks who left our old system who are offering folks tools and resources to build a second half of life. Yeah. And nobody has the answers, but... It's fun to be a part of the project and try to figure it out. So thanks everybody for listening. And thanks you. Thanks you three. We'll have to do another book. We'll, we'll give it some time, but we'll have to do another book because these are just so good. Love it. Okay, guys, have a great day. Bye. Bye. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes 
Make a donation to keep this podcast running. Email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.